0: Welcome to part one of Only Three Lads, episode 121 with the marvelous Helen McCookery book. In this part, we talk to Helen about her long and diverse career that includes music, film, and books. After this is done, be sure to listen to part two where we get into our top five list of songs with horns. If you're joining us for the first time, a little bit about the show. O3L is a music commentary podcast celebrating alternative music from 1974 to 1999. We are not directly affiliated with any of the artists or labels we feature on the show, and any music is presented solely for review, analysis, news reporting, or the non-monetized promotion of the artists we love. As always, we ask that you please support these wonderful musicians by buying their records and watching live music when they come to town. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy Only Three Lads. Only three Episode 121. Top 5 Songs with Horns.
1: With Helen McCookery Book. Part 1.
2: It's the Only Three Lads podcast where we take a look at the golden age of alternative music from 1974 to 1999 episode 121. If yes. you're just joining us, got it right. welcome. Yes, I know for the first time and I don't know how many weeks, but I look 121. Looked. Yes, I uh, you know, maybe, yeah, <laughs> kind of um but yeah, if you're just joining us, welcome. If you've been here for all 121 episodes, you're an OG, and thank you for being back once again. I'm Uncle Greg, of course. We have the bro-fester, the rocktologist. Um, what else,
0: Brett? Well, we are in the presence of an actual real doctor of music today. So oh, that's right. The doctor of music or the PhD we in music, because that's just a fake title. Yeah.
2: Well, that's <laughs> Brett Vargo, of course. So Yes, hello. And he is probably the... So what? what can we call you then? Can we call you the... Uh, maybe, let's see, hmm, you get a well, bachelor's. I, I like
0: to think that maybe I could get, like, an honorary doctorate from some offshore online institution, you know, kind of like how Snoop Dogg probably has a doctorate in, um, physiology from the, uh, University of the, of the Contra Republic.
2: Yeah, never know. I don't know what never. his academia resume is, but I'm sure it's a long one. Oh, I'm sure <laughs> So this week, we're taking a look at our top five songs with horns. Yes. Hard week to get started because I'm sure that
0: all of our lists are very, very long. They are very long. I came up with quite a list and I had to put it all in a playlist and pretty much just go with my gut. Now, did you find this,
2: Brett? I, there were some times I was thinking, okay, is that keyboard or is that horn? So I had to go back and listen. And then there's some songs that are very subtle with their horns. So I didn't yeah. pick those. And then there were some songs. I'll tell you one song I wanted on my list, but I couldn't do it. There was gray area there, but I didn't want to do it. But Radiohead's the national anthem. It was released in 2000, but recorded between 97 and 99. That is one of the greatest True. songs that I love. But I didn't put it on yeah, my list because it's out of the era. Thank you for sticking by the rules. Thank you. I
0: tried to. It's your list. So, you know, I mean, we, we bend occasionally. Once in a while, but that was a bend, though. Yeah, as far as the keyboards versus horns, I like to think that I have a fairly attuned ear to such things because the one thing, you know, when we're talking about our era, I mean, a lot of, you know, 80s, 90s, the uh, synthesized horns were pretty bad. Really? You could usually tell well, yeah. when it's, you know, Casio versus a, a real horn <laughs> section. Nowadays, with MIDI and everything, it's, it's getting considerably more difficult.
2: Yeah, like Blackpink. They have a lot of Uh, horns, but you know that's
0: not a horn section. No, I can guarantee you that's not a (laughs) horn section. Well, let's introduce our guest. (laughs) Well, let's do it. So, of course, we're getting brassed off today, and I mean that in a good way. And I would say that our guest is far more qualified than we are to be talking about not only today's topic, but probably more qualified to talk about anything, really. She started playing bass in Brighton punk bands in the 70s before forming the John peel approved indie pop band, The Chefs, and very appropriate this week after that, Helen in the Horns. In more recent years, she has resumed a very productive solo career, and we just found out she has a new album on the way. She is also an esteemed author, film producer, illustrator, educator, lecturer. I'm wondering if there's anything she cannot do. We are pleased to welcome to only three lads, Dr. Helen Reddington, but I hope she doesn't mind that we call her by her musical name, Helen McHookery Book.
1: Welcome, Helen. Hello, and thank you very much for inviting me, and uh, you can call me whatever you like, and actually... As a person with in, imposter syndrome, I don't feel as though I've done any of those things that you've just described.
0: <laughs> you've done all of those, and I'm sure much, much yes. more. Yeah, it's documented. Yes. So
1: I'm absolutely hopeless at sport, if that's any consolation.
2: <laughs> so you can't throw a ball.
1: Huh? I can't throw yeah, a ball. I, I can't it. catch a ball. <laughs> I can't even see a ball. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. We'll forgive you that one thing. Thank you. Everything else we think you're pretty darn good at. Can we start towards the beginning? So you came up, of course, in the Brighton punk scene, and I was racking my brain trying to think of some notable punk bands that came up in Brighton around those times. And I came up with Poison Girls and Peter and the Test Two Babies. I couldn't really think of many others, but can you maybe talk about what it was like? In the scene at that time and how it eventually uh, led to the formation of the chefs.
1: Yeah, it was a really, a very suddenly kind of exciting scene, almost out of nothing. I'd gone to Brighton. I was brought up in the northeast of England. I'd gone to Brighton, which is right at the other end of the country, um, to do a fine art printmaking course. And I was really bored. Um, it was a course, almost like a finishing school for people, very posh people from London. And uh, I was quite a down-to-earth person, and was very, very out of place. So I started going and seeing a lot of music, live music, which I've always loved doing. And... um started living in a big squat on the seafront and uh, the, there was a band who rehearsed in the basement of the squat every single night. They were called the Molesters and um, they were part of... <laughs> it's good they, punk what, well, yeah, I'm not going to say too much about them actually because anyway, they kind of, they drove us absolutely mad and they were the first indication that punk had actually arrived in, in Brighton. And we got so angry with them that we got them a gig to get them out of the house. (laughs) And they chickened out and didn't play it. So in the matter of two days, me and my then boyfriend and a couple of other friends formed a punk band called Joby and the Hooligans and played their gig for them and got offered. I mean, this is the way that punk happened. You you got got offered more gigs straight away. So I think we wrote about six songs for that gig just by getting tabloid newspapers and writing songs based on the stories that... You know the stories of the day, and we weren't songwriters. I wasn't a bass player, but um, the guys wanted me to play the bass because they wanted the showing off jobs, the singer, and you know the guitarists and everything. So
0: <laughs> nobody wants. Nobody the bass.
1: wants. The bass. I do,
2: but it's the coolest <laughs> well, instrument. Well, do you know? Oh, most important instrument.
1: I realised just how powerful it is because if you dropped that instrument out of one of our gigs, then the music just vanished. And I felt, you know, you could feel it through your feet, you feel it in your chest. It's a really powerful instrument, but it just doesn't look like that from the front, you know. And um, that band kind of split up and... The chefs just kind of evolved. I'd written at art college, I'd written a a song called Kenwood and the Chefs. It's that Kenwood mixers. It's a brand of mixers. I don't know if you have that in the States. And it was just a joke thin pork, sausage, peas, and beans, spaghetti rice and tangerines, lumpy custard, crisp French fries. These are foods I idolise. guitarist out of the band came round. he said oh I've I've written some music for your song and I want to be in a band with you and I was really shocked because I didn't really think of myself as a proper musician I'd just been somebody who got up and played bass in a punk band and everybody else couldn't play as well but what I hadn't realized was that I'd learned how to play in that short space of time and well it was really flattering to be asked to form a band from scratch rather than by accident you know and yeah. so this was uh, Carl Evans, who um, I formed the chefs with. And we had a, a guy who lived two doors down, Rod, our original drummer. And we our first gig had three songs, three people and lasted three minutes, I think, because we didn't know how to write long songs. And I felt, I, I thought writing long songs was a really mysterious and clever thing to do. And we, we tried and tried to make our songs longer, but our, our gigs were very, very short until we realised that you could put instrumentals in and have storytelling in verses and that kind of thing. So as a songwriter and a musician and a band member, everything has been learned while I was going along. And um, the chefs signed to the local record label in Brighton called Atrix Records. And we were the first seven inch single that they put out. Well, it was an EP. It had four songs on it. Didn't get any airplay. But our next EP did and that had a song on it called 24 Hours that John Peel, a very famous BBC DJ who loved independent music and who started off or gave a big boost to the careers of a lot of indie bands, independent music bands, punk bands, reggae bands. He had really eclectic tastes and he loved it. tell you how come he came to play it actually because we were having a photo session with a food photographer believe it or not he was a kind of assistant food photographer who really wanted to photograph bands and he asked us if we'd like to go to his place and his studio the studio where he worked it wasn't his Um, So we went to the studio and we ate up all the foods that he'd been photographing that day. (laughs) uh, Perks of the job. We were hungry, you know, (laughs) we were poor musicians. (laughs) And he took the the photographs and it was exciting. You know, it's the first time anything like that had ever happened. And I said to our manager, oh, I know a band who just took a record to John Peel and he played it straight away. Let's go round to the BBC and wait for him to arrive. It was only about five minutes' walk from the food studio. So we walked and we waited in reception in the BBC and um, he walked in and I said, oh, hello, I'm Helen McCookery Book. I've brought the chef's single for you. And he said, oh, hello, because I'd been writing to him for years. (laughs) And... um... He, uh, he said, oh, hello. He said, come up to the studio. So me and our manager went up to the studio with this record. And he said, oh, I'll put this on now. He, this is in his show, oh, wow. actually in his show. And uh, I was so, I was kind of embarrassed and shocked because it was the last thing I expected to happen. And he put it on and I started talking like mad. You know, I was so kind of nervous. And he said, no, no, shush, shush. This is really good. And he played it and he said, oh, that's really great. And he played it and played it and played it so many nights after that. And some of the other Radio 1 DJs played it as well. They they liked the sound of it as well as the, you know, as well as the song. We had a very good drummer. It was just something that captured people's imagination, you know, and... For us, that was great because it meant that we could, well, it kind of validated us in the, the you know the best way possible, I think. Um, and that's an absolutely true story. So, yeah.
0: That's amazing. And it seems like there was a certain sort of, you know, naivete I mean, from this all being new to you, where, you know, you would just go to the BBC with your record and say, hey, here, we've just released a record. I mean, it's a very romantic vision of rock and roll. And I think that carried through in the chef's music too, right? I mean, because- You had that definite DIY approach of punk rock, but yet you were writing about things and you had a style that really your peers didn't have, singing these catchy, upbeat songs about food and STDs. (laughs) And it was just wonderful. And now all these years later, the 24 Hours EP has been reissued.
1: That's right. Yeah. I mean, it seems it's, it's. I think, probably one of the best, because we had that kind of sort of... I'd say an indie hit. It never got into the charts. We didn't have the infrastructure to chart it. And it sounds like an odd thing to say, but I feel quite lucky that that's the level of fame that I had. And it never got beyond that or that we had as a group because there's a lot of freedom in not becoming famous and and having a step, having a door opened, but not going the whole way through. Because once you're the whole way through, you don't belong to yourself anymore. And the great thing about DIY music is that it does belong to you and you do it your way. And if you want to change, you can change. And if you want to stay the same, you can. And you're not in debt, literally, either literally or sort of metaphorically in in debt to anybody apart from yourself, really. So, yes, it's come back to life again. I think it got its first airplay on Radio Ulster yesterday. Um, a BBC radio station, which is rather nice because it's the BBC again.
0: And that label, Optic Nerve, does some really nice reissues. They
1: do, yeah. Um, They sent everything to me for approval. And, you know, it's quite strange because we no longer own the copyright to those recordings. So it is quite strange because you see something tweeted and I saw it tweeted and I thought, what's going on when I wrote to him? And he was actually very nice about it. And we managed to sort of, you know, be amicable about it which is really important you know
2: now with you not holding those copyrights do you still get a percentage or I mean do you still have some sort of ownership where you get composer fees or how does that work now that you don't own it and like all of a sudden it's being put back out
1: I've got no idea I do have I did write I, I mean I wrote that song um so I I get I get the composer fee for it and um I mean sometimes I I get very tiny I people at my level we have a kind of um downwards competition about how, how little <laughs> how little you earn you know and uh,
2: you, the stamp costs more than what the check is worth what? right something like it's that It's
1: exactly like that <laughs> and you just have to sort of say well you know at least people are listening to it and they like it you know and um and that song, um, I'll tell you a little bit about that song as well, because I was absolutely mad about um, Donna Summer, I Feel Love. And I didn't realise that that's driving, <laughs> I didn't realise that that was a machine. I thought that was somebody playing uh, playing an instrument. So I was trying to make something that sounded like a Donna Summer song, but using the, using the. Sort of independent instruments, my very cheap bass and my not not very kind of experienced vocals and things like that. And and in fact, every you know everyone in the band knew that was what I was trying to do. It didn't feel like a failed attempt because I felt like the storytelling was really kind of important to the songs. That's yeah. actually true. I had this t- tremendous crush on this guy and um, almost stalked him, but didn't. you know, and when you realize that you're not going to get the guy, then what you do is you write a song and you've got the song, you know, so it's a win-win situation kind of thing. But again, it was very kind of um, unplanned, you know, it was, we need a new song. I'd like to do something like that. So I'll write something like that. And some versions have got four verses and we had to lose a verse for one of the releases, but um, yeah.
2: Can you define almost stalking? So you didn't have social media (laughs) when you wrote this song. So Did you like maybe like walk by his place of employment, would go by his house, would drive the long way to your house to go by his house? How exactly do you sort of almost start?
1: Well, I mean, for a start, it was the 70s. So no employment, no cars.
2: (laughs) Yeah, okay. You
1: know, it it, it wasn't that kind of time. But no, I would show up at his gigs and, you know, all that kind of thing. And. uh,
2: Act surprised. Oh, you're here too. Wow. Yeah. Well, the thing. Is, I've done that too. Don't worry, Miss Helen. He,
1: the thing is, it. he kind of liked it as well. I mean, he used to show up at my, my house. There was a there was a the Buzzcocks did a gig in um, Brighton. It it was almost a riot at that gig. I didn't go to it. I, I didn't really have enough money to go out. So I had you know, apart from being in a band, that was my night out. But their equipment got kind of. So this is why I'm not going to tell you what his name was. Their equipment kind of got stolen, and I know various people who you know took amplifiers away and things like that and this guy showed up on my doorstep with with um a symbol <laughs> and uh, at, at midnight and I you know that's a very strange way to conduct a relationship I think you know I wasn't quite sure what it meant so yeah, nothing really nothing really came of that
2: well, it was a musical instrument and a souvenir all at the same time. I think he, deep down inside, did like you too, Miss
1: Helen. I think he might have done, yes. And um, yes. But sometimes it's best just leaving these things in the air, isn't it? I think
2: Exactly. Well, the Statue of Limitations, at least in the U.S., would be up. I don't know in the U.K. how long those last, but usually it's seven years here in the
0: United States. Okay. Yeah. So don't worry.
1: I won't worry. He's not going to get in
0: trouble. <laughs> no. Yeah. All right. Of course we're talking about songs with horns. So after the chefs then you formed Helen and the Horns which is absolutely truth in advertising because that's pretty much what it was, right? That's right. Yeah. Can you tell us what the impetus was for that project?
1: Yes, I wanted to have a cowboy band. I really liked Ennio Morricone. I liked the sort of atmosphere in that in in his music, those, you know, those um, Clint Eastwood films. And mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to kind of go in a different musical direction and um so I'd already written um, a couple of cowboy songs with Carl from um, The Chefs, but we just decided to split the band up. And so I took my songs and I got introduced to Leicester Square from the monochrome set, who was taking a sabbatical wow. from the monochrome set. And I I sang my songs onto a cassette and gave them to him and didn't hear from him. And then at the Notting Hill Carnival, I heard this voice going, Helen, Helen, and it was this girlfriend and um, they were there together and and she said we love your songs we've been singing them and oh (laughs) so i started rehearsing with leicester square and a drummer called mike slocum who now plays with the monochrome set actually so we were rehearsing these cowboy songs we did one gig and then the money ran out no money to pay for taxis to get the drum kit across town to rehearsals or anything like that so i said why don't we um I'll just find a horn section and rehearse because I want it to sound like any Morricone. I want that trumpet sound and everything. And when we've got the songs rehearsed together, then we can put the whole band together. And, you know, then it's worth spending that money on the drum kit because I think the horns is going to take a while. So I started asking around trying to find horn players. And I, I, I saw a band with a trombone and sax and I sort of said to them, oh, I'm looking for a trumpet player. And they said, oh, we don't know anyone, but we'll play trombone and sax for you. And it seemed like such a positive offer <laughs> that I yeah, said yeah. yes. And um, so I started rehearsing the songs with them and um, the monochrome set actually gave us a gig. And by this time I'd swapped to guitar just for rehearsal purposes because um, Lester Square had been playing guitar in our, in our cowboy band, in our Ennio Morricone band. And the monochrome set offered us a gig at, at a Polytechnic and we played our songs and we went down really well. And, uh, the horn players just said, well, what's the point of having anybody else? If we, you know, if we can play and people can really like us anyway, we might as well just carry on like this. Right. So I just said, oh, yeah, all right, then. Well, I always heard in my head a trumpet player. So we used to have session trumpet players playing to complete the horn section. So we would trumpet alto sax and trombone. Okay. somehow because we didn't have drums to sound check or anything like that. We ended up on the bottom of the bill at so many gigs because we were easy. We were a fast sound check. So, you know, we'd be doing punk gigs, we'd play to a thousand people at this really well-known um punk venue at Warwick University and they were all pogoing. And then just a few weeks later we were playing to um it was uh, the cafe royal in piccadilly it was a kind of graduation ball for medical students from king's college who were all waltzing around wearing their taffeta dresses and their dinner jackets (laughs) the same music so we just had this kind of really um nobody quite knew what we were or anything like that so we could be anything that anybody wanted us to be which, which i quite liked
0: yeah, and I get that sense from the Helen and the Horns stuff as well, because I hear not only country and Western, but I hear some swing and Dixieland, and it's just a, a really nice melange of influences.
1: I mean, I realized this morning when I was thinking about doing this, my, my dad had a Herb Alpert LP, which he used to play constantly. He absolutely loved it. And It's really, really, really cheesy music, but it is so joyful. And I think that just gave me this idea that anything to do with brass was going to be really, really interesting and intricate and really, really. um, I mean, you can create so many moods with a very, very simple section. Yeah. It, it was Spanish Flea that was my dad's real favourite, you know.
0: Oh, yeah. Spanish Flea is one of my favourite recordings of all yeah, time. Yeah, it's it's
1: great, it. isn't it? You know, and it's just like... A, you know how many is. times
0: I listen to Taste
2: of Honey making my list?
1: Oh, oh yes, that's too. another yeah. good one. Yeah, I, yeah yes. it's very... I mean, there's lots of great, great, great Tijuana Brass things. And actually, I even had a copy of these. This Guy's in Love Is You, which when I was a teenager... That was the boyfriend I wanted. And I've still got that seven-inch single, and it's completely worn out. It's so crackly, because <laughs> <as> I played <laughs> it over and over again, imagining, you know, this guy. I had no idea what Herbal put... I mean, you couldn't really see from the, the covers of the album that Dad had, but, you know, I, I imagined he was this fantastic boyfriend type, you know, and um, it, it was very, very romantic. And I just think those th- those records are just so... Positive, really, and entertaining and clever in the best sense of the world. They're really, really well arranged. Really well arranged.
0: Absolutely.
2: Well, you know, Miss Holland, you were talking about um, your love of the Clint Eastwood movies. Have you ever heard Muse, Nights of, I think it's called Clydonia? No. That's a song from Muse, which I think you would like yeah. if you like that Maricone stuff, because yeah. that is straight. Have do you, Brett, have you heard that song? You know what I'm talking about? I have. Doesn't that sound like it would be... The same vein, yeah.
0: It's it's one of the better Muse songs. Yes,
2: I just thought I'd throw that at you. Well, that's
1: really interesting I, at the moment because I've just I've just decided to leave my job, and so I'm going to spend the next year listening to all the music I've missed because I, I work because I work in a university. One of the things I teach is songwriting, and so some some years I've been listening to hundreds of student songs, and it's made it very difficult to listen to new music because my list, my ears are worn out.
0: <laughs> you know? sure, I bet. You know? And you find that you're very analytical then after like listening to all these songs and probably critiquing them that now when you hear a song on the radio, it's like, mm, I would have done a little something different with the bridge or
1: not so much that it's more to do with, um, with artificiality and, wow. and mm-hmm. um, authenticity actually. And some really, really artificial music I really, really like. And, and the music that I really don't like is m- music that is pretending to be authentic and it's not. And I feel like I've got a very, very good radar for f- fakery, you know. Like, yeah. I, and, and one of my favourite things is, I mean, I go to see a lot of live music. And one of my favourite things is to see starting out bands who aren't quite sure how the music slots together yet. And they haven't polished it. And it's like, a, it's like a raw diamond or something. And that is just great to see, you know.
2: Because it's real.
1: Because it's real, yeah.
2: Now, do you find your students that since they're, you know, university level, that they can be honest or maybe they haven't found themselves yet to be authentic and honest with themselves? Because it's really hard to do that at any stage of life, but especially when you're young and you're trying to impress others.
1: Yeah, I, I think actually... In 99% of the cases, I think they are really honest. Um, I think that, um, you know, the music does sound really authentic and I think it's probably um, because we spend a lot of time talking and sometimes it's because they're quite angry with me. I ask for that honesty and they think that they can put, sometimes they think they can put some chords together in a particular order and they can sing very well over the top and that that song should be given a a high grade because they've done that but to me that's very mechanical and um Mm. the whole time I've been doing this I've wanted people's hearts you know and I've wanted them to uh I think sometimes they feel oh if we do this at university we'll never be able to do outside university but I think People are whole beings, and I think they can do something really, really good for their university project, and the next thing's going to be even better. And I think the more you give to your songwriting and the more risks you take in your songwriting, the better your next songwriting period is going to be. You know, I think it's when you hold stuff back and you think, oh, I don't want anyone to hear that. Well, what's the point of that? <laughs> you know, what's the point of right. what's the point of clutching your clutching everything to yourself? You have to, even if you're an introvert, you have to turn yourself inside out and say, "This is what I've got." You know.
2: So, what would you tell a university student? Like, what's your advice to start writing a song? What would be a perfect song to you?
1: Perfect song, um, a song that's triggered by something that maybe a news story you've seen a book that you've read or a film that you've seen, that makes you think a lot of different things. I mean, lots of people write love songs. Writing a good love song is really, really hard. It's really hard because getting the language, finding new ways to say things without going right out on a limb, it's very, very difficult. Matching the mood to the words and things like that. And almost the easiest thing is to take a step away from that And say, what was the best book I read recently? Or what was the best film I've seen recently? What is it in in what's happening in the world I care about? And writing about that because it focuses your mind. And you can pull words and descriptions out of those things that fit with that idea. And it's almost like tricking yourself to do something that you hadn't expected to do and i think that's a really good starting point um for people
0: have you had a student who's a super fan of of your work
1: yes although they're quite kind of subtle about it and i mean i think they know that it would be quite difficult actually because i've got two different names i tend not to tell the students what the other name's doing
0: ah okay
1: so so i'm i'm you know that awful lecturer called Helen Reddington.
0: (laughs) Separate church and state, so to speak. It's a bit
1: like that, yeah. I mean, every so often, (laughs) you know, some of them will show up at a gig or something, but um, sometimes I think it's just like a music thing. Like a lot of my students, they'll be writing, they'll be R&B or hip hop or something, um, which is not to say that they wouldn't listen to my music anyway. I mean, funnily enough, one of the things that I, I have occasionally played 24 hours to them and they have absolutely loved it, But I think that's because I wrote that when I was their age, or maybe just a little bit younger. So it's got that kind of real speaking to that kind of
0: relatability. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's what I meant to say. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, If we can talk about your thesis that was then published as the book Lost Women of Rock Music. Let me, if I get this wrong, Female Musicians of the Punk Era. Yeah, you got that right. Yeah. Um, And then that led to the documentary that you co produced with. Another one of my favorites, Gina Birch from The Raincoats, stories from the she I have not been able to see this movie because I haven't been able to find it anywhere. Uh, can you tell us about the project and why it's important that you told the stories of these wonderful, groundbreaking musicians? And where can we see the movie?
1: Well, so it originated, I, I went and did an MA when I was about 30. And that was the first time I'd ever seen academic books. I didn't even realise they existed. You know, my art college degree was really not academic at all. I thought I was very clever and I got the shock of my life when I went to do an MA and saw (laughs) academic books. I thought, this is really great because there are all these cultural studies books and I thought, I'm going to find, I'm going to read about bands like the one I was in with, you know, punk bands with women musicians in and there was not a single book in the library. Big library, lots of books on punk. No books about female instrumentalists. And um, it just made me really angry, actually, really angry. And that was an experience of being written out of history. And I thought about it and thought about it. So I thought, I know, maybe I could do a PhD. And I applied to two different places. But again, it was a money problem. I had two really young children by then, and I could not afford to pay for a PhD. And then, after two attempts, I managed to get a job at the University of Westminster. And they actually wanted a person who'd been in a band um, on their staff because their staff were mostly session musicians. Although Michael Riley from Steel Pulse was working there as well. So that was great because we were friends wow. already. So uh, I started working there and almost as soon as I got there, I said, could I do a PhD because I want to write this book? So that's I started off, I, I was supervised by this really nice academic called Dave Lang who wrote a book called one called one wonders about british punk and he was a great supervisor because he was really patient he made me throw away the first oh, this doesn't sound like a patient person does it but he made me throw away <laughs> he made me throw away the first <laughs> 20,000 words which is rub- rubbish i just you know because i still thought i was quite clever i am writing and writing and writing 20 20,000 words of rubbish said right okay now it's time to start Helen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i sort of started interviewing people and one of the things that I found very interesting was that people don't say the things that you want them to or the things you expect them to and that made me really enjoy the interviews, just what people were going to come out with because I had no idea what they were going to come out with and it was very motivating because of course I had to read all of those academic books and explain you know, why it was so important that I'd written what I'd written and ended up out of those people I spoke to with they're my friends now, you know, That's great. it was a very kind of. I think they were very pleased to be asked to tell their stories because, apart from some journalism, um, you know, and this is like maybe twenty or thirty years after their careers, and they every, a lot of them had felt forgotten, and um, obviously, I mean, Jean is a very friendly person. We ended up going on tour together actually, and all kinds of things, and almost as a joke in. About twenty, so 2015, she said, why don't we make a film of your book? And I had been teaching entrepreneurship. So I said, OK, let's go and tell the pop music librarian at the British Library that we're going to make a film about punk and ask him if he'd like to show it at the British Library because this is what I've been telling my students to do. <laughs> and um, yeah. so we made an appointment to see him and he said, did you realise that 2016 is the... Um, 40th anniversary of punk yeah. um, and I'll book your film. And he told us afterwards we were the first thing we'd booked and he'd booked and we didn't even have a film. <laughs> so we had to... <laughs> Better get going. <laughs> yes. And this is like, this was November 2015 and the actual thing was in the summer of 2016. So Gina already had some spare footage because she'd been making a film with a raincoat. So she had some really great footage of Palmolive and of Viv Albertine. So, basically, I contacted people that I'd spoken to for the book and said, "Would you like to be in our film?" And we shot it on all sorts of different cameras. It's a real DIY film, and it was such a panic to get it ready for the British Library um, that we didn't even really think about whether anybody would come to see it. and when we actually showed it, it was sold out <laughs> and and we kind of we were sitting in the front row, and we'd put it together um in a scramble, we hadn't sort of thought about the narrative or anything like that. And um, you could just feel this wave of love from behind us. We also, I think, because both of us are quite humorous and we kind of picked out the, I suppose, the funniest bits of the stories <laughs> with people saying all these terrible things that had happened to them. We And we <laughs> kept it very much to do with rehearsals and instruments and opportunities and all these kind of things. And um, it was just absolutely amazing. And then at the end... I can't remember when we thought of it. I think it was just before the gig. We thought, shall we all sing Oh Bondage Up Yours at the end? So I got my daughter to do a blackmail writing kind of um, a, a lyric sheet. When we got to the British Library, their sort of events guy said, oh, do you want this photocopied and put on every seat? And I, yes. <laughs> you know. And um, so Zoe Street Howe, um, who'd been playing drums, she's an author in her own right. She wrote the book um, Typical Girls about the, the slits and, Um, So she is a drummer and I took some drumsticks down. We hadn't asked her (laughs) and I said, you know, will you play drums? And and I got a box from behind the bar. So she played drums on the box. A a friend of ours called um, Terry played guitar and um, I played, I can't remember, I think I played guitar. Gina played bass. Um, We got um, Jane from the Modettes and Tessa from the Slits to sing and a friend of mine called wow. Karina Townsend, who I work with, I said, oh, can you can you work out the sax part? And so she did. <laughs> and so we all got up at the end and sang, oh, bondage up yours. And the audience all joined in and people sort of ran down and danced. And it was just a, a really fantastic celebration of, I mean, all their events were really good, at That, but, but I felt like ours was the best because <laughs> it was the most fun, you know?
0: Yeah, that is so cool. Yeah. Does a recording exist of that?
1: Um, there is, um, one of my daughters filmed o Bondi, the O Bondage Up Yours, so I think if you search for O Bondage Up Yours in the British Library, um, I think you can find that. Um, and uh, regarding the film, we um, we had a licence, because it, it's to do with song copyrights, and we had a licence for the song "Oh Bondage Up Yours and for a couple of the other songs we used in the film, which we didn't realise that it would have a life, I suppose, and the next year, 2017, it was picked up by an organisation called Doc and Roll that shows um, rock and roll documentaries. They, they they find really great documentaries. And so we travelled with it. One of, one of us, or both of us, travelled with it. Sometimes we played some songs and sometimes we just showed the film and talked. And Scotland, we went to Belfast, we went to Bristol, Brighton. Um, and then suddenly the copyright in the songs ran out, so we couldn't show it anymore. So we've just um, decided to kind of revive it. We're showing at the Punk Festival Rebellion next weekend. And we decided that we'd write our own music for it. And we were mucking around. uh, Me and Gina were mucking around and I was playing guitar. and She was playing bass. And we flipped the chords of Oh, Bondage Up Yours. And I recorded, she recorded it on her iPhone. And um, I was doing some gigs with a band called The Girl Was a Replaceable Head. And they had Lindy Morrison from The Go-Betweens playing drums for them. Yes. Yes. I
0: wanted to ask you about that because I'm a huge Go-Betweens fan.
1: Before Lindy went back to Australia, I said, oh, Lindy, will you would play drums on one of the tracks on one of my albums? And I took this iPhone recording into the studio and I said, oh, just play on this as well. She said, oh, yeah, all right then. And she played on it. And... Um, so wow. she's playing on that. It's got no vocals. Wrong. Everything's very unfinished. It's a very DIY film still. We put it into, we yeah. put a narrative through it. So it makes more sense now. Unfortunately, we lost some really great stories. Um, that just happens, I think, with everybody who makes films. But we now have 45 minutes of film with this music, which we might finish. And then we might actually do something about distributing it properly because um, it's. Been a film in waiting for quite a long time since its first um, showings, you know.
0: Thank you for bringing that up because I was I was going to ask you about the uh, girl with the replaceable head. And that I know there's some YouTube footage where um, it was you and Paul Handyside and Lindy doing apology acceptance. that's right yeah which is like i mean to me that's like an indie rock super group
1: yes well that was the idea of um tap taff from the girl with the replaceable head and i, I completely panicked you know I was like, oh no not learn <laughs> learn another song but it's actually quite an easy song to learn you know and uh, and there was yeah. a bit of a scrum at the end and one of the things that i think probably any musician will tell you is that by the end of the gig the audience is really quite drunk so they're not expecting they're not expecting perfection they'll usually be singing along anyway if it's a song like that and it it did go down really well and it it was a great thing for Lindy as well you know I think she really enjoys yeah. herself.
0: She's just such a great inventive drummer.
1: She is, and um, she's also a great person. I mean, she does all this campaigning for, uh, you know, Aboriginal people in Australia. I travelled back from Brighton with her on the train and she has got such an interesting life story, a really interesting life story. She's got a lot of dignity as well because she doesn't dig into bad things that have happened into her life. She just is purely heading forward. And, you know, and we had a really strange thing in common, actually, that both of us really like living alone. <laughs> we both talk to our houses when we get home, you know? <laughs> which uh, she Which I've never met anybody like that, you know. <laughs> Yes. Yeah.
0: And have you read Tracy Thorne's book, Rock and Roll Friend?
1: I haven't. No, I knew about it. Um, I've read Tracy's other books. I've read, I I really love the Naked at the Albert Hall book that she wrote. um, Mm. Because last year, I was it last year? Last year, I published a book about um, recording female recording engineers. And um, I, I just thought that'd be very interesting to read. So I was trying to read everything where people were writing about voices and themselves and being a female and everything. And I read her first book as well. Um, So I haven't read that book yet. Again, you know, having to read books for work is kind of, now I've got this massive (laughs) list. I've got actually a huge pile of books, you know, that I've got to, I haven't got to. I will enjoy reading because they're not actually feeding into teaching. They're actually reading for pleasure. So I'm really looking forward to reading that.
0: She's a very good and engaging writer. And uh, what you said about, Lindy and really not being one to dwell on the past a lot or or think about the negativity of the past. I know Lindy was very cautious to say these are not my words. This is Tracy's telling of my story. Yeah. So it's a very good book and very highly recommended. Yeah. And you had mentioned the book you wrote about. That's another one that's on my list. I actually have it on order. She's at the controls about women behind the boards in the recording studio. I understand that you were just nominated for an award for that book as well. So congratulations. Yes,
1: I mean, that, that's, uh, that was another thing I found out on Twitter.
0: <laughs> the things you yeah, find yes. on Twitter.
1: Um, but it's a great thing. I mean, that book took me 10 years to write because I've got two daughters. They're grown up and everything. But, you know, you have a life and I was teaching. Sometimes I've been teaching at two or three different places. And it's quite a sort of, it could be a contentious idea that having men processing women's voices all the time is borderline creepy, actually. You know, so um, I had to be very careful about how I worded it and how I researched it and whether it even mattered, really. Um, and I, I went all over the place to try out the ideas to conferences. I went to Scandinavia, I went to Vienna and, and lots of places. If you go to conferences and you talk about your ideas and people give you really, really straightforward feedback. So if they don't like it, they tell you really, really in a forthright way. And if they do like it, they often give you um, really helpful suggestions. And again, it was really driven by the interviews. I absolutely loved doing the interviews and... I spoke to people. I spoke to grime producers, pop producers, dance producers, all sorts of, and lots of different ages as well. My oldest person was in their 70s and the youngest was in their 20s. And again, I was really stuck with that. And then one of my daughter's friend's dad came to paint my front door and he was painting and we were chatting. And he said, oh, you know, my other daughter's really bored. She's done very well at university. She's got nothing to do. And I said, oh, do you know what? I've got 10 Interviews recorded that need to be transcribed. <laughs> and I'm very, very slow and I'm dyslexic. And if she'd be willing to do them, I can't pay much, but I can pay a little bit. And he said, Oh, I'll ask her. And um, then I got an email from the, his daughter. Oh, yes, yes, I'll do this. So the mum was a cleaner. So she used to turn up on a Friday morning. Um, after her early morning cleaning job at eight o'clock in the morning. And I used to give her a, a CD with an re- interview on. Uh, and on a, on the Sunday night of that weekend, it would all be typed up and in my email inbox. So um, if Sarah hadn't been able to do the interview transcriptions, it, the book might never have been published. You know, you need these impetus things to keep you, to make yeah. you do things those interviews are just really, really interesting. I, th- I think people have such interesting stories to tell about their lives. And if they're musicians, they're kind, well, maybe it's because I'm a musician, I find it double interesting, but it's all those details. And I think being a musician and asking musicians questions, you sometimes get slightly different answers than you would if you were a straight rock journalist or something. I'm not sure whether that's right or not, but
2: I think yeah, they would open to you more than because you've been there. They feel a connection because you guys walk the same path. Yes. You think something like that. Yes,
1: and I think you know one of the, th- the first things you learn is do not tell them about yourself <laughs> because otherwise you come with this recording and it's all you blabbing away about. Oh yes, I this this is not interesting. I want to know about them. <laughs> you know, so I learned that early on that. You know, when you're interviewing somebody, it's not about you. It's not a friendly conversation. It's actually about you asking them things. And sometimes people find it quite difficult to tell you things, but it's working out the right questions to get them engaged in, in telling you what things. Well,
2: have you noticed Brett has done a great job at this? with the interview with you.
0: <laughs> You're the professional interviewer, you know, radio guy Greg. I'm just a music nerd. So I mean, I think, you know, that's kind of our approach too is I mean, we are very genuine in our love of of music and the creative process and the music we talk about on this show. So I'm far from a professional interviewer, but I just love listening to the stories.
2: I think it's the curiosity. Like like what Miss Helen was talking about how to write a song, that's what I'm curious is how did how did she get there? Mm. Cuz somebody listening can then get there too. Yeah. And I know that right. she's, you know, been there, does it, is doing it. And again, look at her resume. She's done more probably within
0: two weeks of her life than I've done my whole life thus far. Well, I got to tell you, I've been writing songs for 35 years and and I've picked up quite a few tips from Helen just in the uh, <laughs> last 25 Me years. too. I'm <laughs> writing it down. It's,
1: yes. Each of you are going to go write a song at the end of this. That would be an p- absolute perfect result for me. I'd really oh, like no, that. Yeah, see, yeah. All right. This
2: is what I wrote down. People don't say what you want or expect them to. Yes. Sounds like a good chorus. Um, yeah, I'm going to try and, that's what I'm going to try and do. I'm going
0: to try and mold that into something. That's
1: a nice long song title oh. as well. That's that's a country song title.
0: Yeah. Country or, or a Morrissey song title, either way. Almost, yeah. yes. And that I live way, in yeah. Phoenix,
2: Miss Helen, so country music, here we go. Yeah, so. Yes, yes.
0: I only had one more thing jotted down on on my list of things to ask about. And this was another thing that I saw on Twitter that you are contributing a song to an upcoming Kylie Minogue tribute
1: album. Oh, yes.
0: What song are you doing? Because I'm also a Kylie fan, so... The
1: guy's been really decent. He's let a lot of us do Can't Get You Out of My Head. There's going to be so many versions of that. It's kind of, you know... (laughs) That is just the perfect song, Can't Get You Out of My Head, because it's got so many hooks. The title is all about hooks. Isn't it? And also the people who wrote it, Rob from the band Mud, who was like a childhood band of mine, and Kathy Dennis, who is just a great songwriter, and the two of them, and then Kylie. It's just an absolutely perfect song. I can never get tired of hearing it, you know, and I was very limited. I I wanted to do something electronic just for fun and i, I actually i couldn't because none of the things that i wanted to i wanted to use household appliances and they wouldn't they wouldn't they wouldn't <laughs> play you know <laughs> so i ended up doing a it's a kind of a electric guitar picky version of it that kind of goes a bit wonky halfway through so and i my, my nightmare is that we've all done exactly the same thing <laughs>
2: maybe some people have done locomotion
1: possibly yeah i do have a list somewhere but i probably shouldn't tell you because he's probably keeping it under wraps i imagine
0: we don't have long to wait i think it's out this month
1: yes he's just he's got 12 tracks i think he's just waiting for a few more yeah yeah but what a great thing to do
0: (laughs) and it is for a good cause right it's a charity album yeah
1: it is yeah yeah
0: And so concludes part one. Now go get yourself some lumpy custard or crisp french fries and join us back for part two on your favorite podcast platform. The theme music is Frequency, written and performed by yours truly, Brett Vargo. Any other music in this episode is presented solely for purposes of review, examination, and news reporting. If you like what you hear, go to your record store and pick up the LP, CD, cassette, or 8-track, or stream it if you're one of those newfangled fancy pants. If we're lucky enough to still have these artists with us, go out and see some live music. For the latest updates, join the O3L community at facebook.com only3lads. We want to hear from you. And while you're at it, click on the Shop Now link for the coolest threads. Until next time, thanks for listening.